ready to go. Welcome everybody and uh, happy Wednesday evening and uh, we're ready for Revelation 17 and as uh, Mike said, uh, I'm going to present this two different ways. Um, tonight we're going to present it the way we've been doing the other 16 chapters. We're going to look at the verses and study them and and see what the, how they're fitting into the context of the book of Revelation. Uh, next week though, we're going to really dig into identifying uh, in another way who this harlot of Babylon is. So uh, I encourage you to be there next week for that. And uh, we'll see what that's all about uh, next week. So um, we're ready to begin. If you're all ready and you have uh, Bibles open to Revelation 17, of course, we'll be shooting around the Bible to see that uh, what we're saying matches the rest of Scripture and uh, pray that the Lord's glorified through it. So let's ask him to join us tonight, if we could. Uh, Father, in Jesus' name, uh, we come to you and, and ask, Lord, that everything that we say and do would honor you tonight, Lord, and uh, you would just teach us. You'd be our instructor, be our rabbi, Lord. Uh, this is for you. We love you. We serve you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, all right. Okay, so we shall begin. <clears throat> Now, as you know, uh, tonight's study is called uh, Bar Babylon's Harlot, Part 1. We'll do a Part 2 next week. And there's a wide a range of views trying to identify uh, this harlot. And uh, what I would say is this. In Chapter 17, I want you to have this ecclesiastical or this church view of the harlot. And we're going to get a political view of her. In chapter 18, when we do that in two weeks, you'll see uh, this is a little bit different view of the harlot in chapter 18. But for tonight, uh, for chapter 17, I think we're to see it as the apostate church is what is being condemned here. And uh, we'll see that as we unpack this chapter tonight. So we already saw the fall of Babylon, as you know, in chapter 14, verse 8 and chapter 16, verse 9. It spoke of Babylon as fallen. So this judgment then will be describing that fall that, that was mentioned in chapter 14 and 16. So chronologically, chapter after chapter 16 comes chapter 19, chronologically. Chapter 17 and 18 that we're in tonight are describing events without moving the time frame forward. So the time frame is not moving forward since chapter 16. And the next time it moves forward is when we're in chapter 19. So this is describing events without time advancing in chapter 17 and 18. All right, so with that, uh, let's get into our text. Uh, the first two verses of chapter 17 say this, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, so we, we went through the seven bowls of judgment uh, last week, one of those angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. <clears throat> now I'm going to read through the rest of the chapter so you get the big picture of this whole thing, and then we'll come back and revisit this. So join me uh, in verse 3. So he carried me away <coughs> in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. 
The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and, the and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. That'll come into play, especially next week in our study. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the 10 horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. They are, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. They are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called, are called, chosen, and faithful. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the, harlot, where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So there you get clue number one. This woman is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now what city is that? Well, that's Babylon. We're gonna talk about Babylon a bit tonight. And as we go back to the first two verses, we see that one of the seven angels that had the seven bowls is talking to John and says, I'll show you the judgment of this great harlot who sits on many waters. So now, as you know from Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 15, Jesus Christ warns us to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. This is apostate Christendom that looks good but is false and misleading and has no gospel attached to it, okay? So this harlot, uh, this is the judgment of, of these false teachers. This is the judgment of that system of teaching that is not of Christ. So uh, she sits on many waters, okay? So we're, we're told at the end of this chapter, these waters are multitudes, nations, and tongues. So they're the, the peoples. Okay, the Gentiles are usually represented by the oceans or the seas. You know, you get out of the land of Israel onto the seas and so forth, and you're into Gentile territory. So this is a representation of them. So <clears throat> she's sitting on these many waters. She has 
authority over them. She has sway over them. She has influence over them. Now, this is why the Reformation happened. This is how Martin Luther and the Reformers saw the church in their day as this apostate church, this false teaching church. Now, why is the charge against her fornication? Why is the charge fornication? Well, the charge is fornication because our relationship to Christ is compared to that as a bride and a bridegroom. Jesus Christ is our bridegroom and we are his bride. So therefore, infidelity in our faith, infidelity in our religion becomes adultery or fornication. Now, if we go to Proverbs chapter 7, I want you to see how Solomon, in writing Proverbs, portrays this woman. Join me in Proverbs chapter 7. I'm going to begin in verse 6. <coughs> Proverbs 7, 6, relating to this harlot. It says, For at the window of my house I looked through my lattice and saw among the simple... I perceived among the youths a young man devoid of understanding. Okay, so one of the attacks on us is going to be that our understanding is swayed. Our understanding is confused. Passing along the street near her corner, and he took the path to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. Now, where do we get that word crafty from before in the Bible? We all know it's Genesis 3. It's the serpent was more crafty than any of the animals that the Lord God had made. And we know that Satan is possessing that serpent. So there's a tie there to where this is going. She was loud and rebellious and her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him. With an impudent face, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. <clears throat> so these are the seductions of this harlot, which becomes the false teaching. These are the seductions of false teachings that bring people into their, false, their falsehood. She says, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. So I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face and I have found you. I've spread my bed with tapestry. So here goes her seductions of the adulterous woman, of the uh, harlot. I've spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrhs, aloes, and cinnamon. That always cracks me up that cinnamon is something that a man's not supposed to be able to resist if it's on the bed sheets of a woman, I guess. Uh, I just like it on my toes, so I don't understand the seduction there. But anyways, come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home on the appointed day. So there's security and safety that she's promising if, if he will give in to her seductions. And with her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. This is where death starts coming in here. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately he went after her, listen to this, as an ox goes to the slaughter. That's what it looks like from God's perspective. Following these false teachings is like an ox going to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till an arrow struck his liver and as a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. 
That is the danger of apostate Christendom. That is the danger of false teaching. It is deadly. And what's the advice that Solomon gives in such a case? If you continue in verse 24, now therefore listen to me, my children, pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Think of all the seductions of the world, all the thing the world's the world promises us that it can't deliver on, then it all leads us away from Christ. Okay, so it says, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men, people that thought it would never happen to them. That's who, that's who got captivated, those who thought it would never happen to them. Her house is the way to hell. Isn't that enough? Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. That's the crafty harlot, the crafty harlot. And we're seeing her judgment here in, in Revelation 17. We're seeing her judgment. Now, so what is the huge offense here? Well, the Bible, as I said, Jesus presented as our bridegroom. We are presented as, as his bride. So the Bible has a strong wedding theme throughout. In fact, if I had to give the Bible just one theme to cover the 66 chapters, I might very well say that theme would be a wedding theme. The Bible begins with a wedding. It begins with a married couple in Adam and Eve, and it ends at a wedding feast in the New Jerusalem. So we begin with a wedding, we end with a wedding feast. And why does it take thousands of years and 66 books to get us from the wedding to the wedding feast? because all of those books and all of those centuries are showing that we are a very rebellious bride. We are very difficult to win over bride, but our bridegroom is faithful and persistent and will stop at nothing, including his own death, to win us back. Now, the Bible begins with Adam and Eve as a married couple and ends at the wedding feast in the New Jerusalem. Jesus's final teachings are about this wedding theme that he puts in parabolic form. John the Baptist introduces to us to Jesus as a bridegroom. Jesus says he goes and prepares a place for us that where he is, we can be also. That's bridegroom language because they would, uh, when, a, when a bridegroom proposed to a bride, he would leave for a year to go and prepare a place for them to live. And then he would come back after he prepared that place to get to gather his bride to be with him forever. That's how weddings went back then. Isn't that exactly our salvation story? Jesus, our bridegroom, saves us. He, he marries us. He goes away, he prepares a place for us. And when he comes back, he gathers his bride and takes his bride with him to be with him where he is forever and ever. Now, we are to prepare our, just like he went and prepared a place for us, our lives right now is us preparing ourselves for him. And what does that look like? Well, it's Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation 21, absolutely beautiful uh, teaching here. John says in verse 1, or actually in verse 2, he says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So we become that new Jerusalem, we're prepared as a bride for her. Now, I always knew that was like wonderful language, being prepared as a bride for her husband. But then when my daughter Kristen got married, 
I got to see firsthand the detail that goes into preparing a bride. Because in my living room sat Kristen with a hair person who took all of her hair, every strand of it, put it exactly where it was to go and super glued or whatever they did, they just made sure that hair did not move for the entire day, period. Every strand of hair in place, locked in place, ain't going nowhere and all of that. And then another girl came in for makeup and every square inch of her face was cared for. Her eyebrows were cared for. Her cheeks were cared for. Every square inch of her was cared for in a tremendous way. And then, of course, the dress and the shoes that nobody saw because the dress it was, you know, had a train on it, but the, the shoes were still important for some reason. And she was a bride prepared for her husband. A man, is it detailed? And is it extravagant and expensive even? And so much care has gone into it. And when John sees our new dwelling place, he says, that's how Jesus prepared this place for us. Every detail was cared for, for you, his bride. Now, in the first century, if you lived in the first century, the way you would understand all this wedding talk was they had arranged marriages. And in these arranged marriages, a father would choose a bride for his son. And they didn't have a very high divorce rate like we have. So fathers had a pretty good idea of how, who would actually make his son very happy and would be very happy with his son, both the moment they met and for decades and decades to come till death did them part. Now, if you are in front of me now, saved by Jesus Christ, then what the Bible's trying to tell you is this, that God chose you because you please Jesus Christ both now and you will forever and ever. You're pleasing to him as a bride. So God chose you as a father chooses a bride with the idea of his son's good pleasure. And so we are very pleasing. We who are saved are very pleasing to the Lord and we can know that through the bridal imagery given to us in scripture. Now, this is why the charge of fornication is so hideous. It's a betrayal of these wedding vows, of this covenant that God has made with us, with his son. <clears throat> Verse three, it says, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Now, what a picture that is. What a picture that is. So what John sees is this woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now, it's full of names of blasphemy. So all the things that oppose God it identifies this woman. And this beast, the beast having seven heads and ten horns, we'll speak of later. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, <coughs> purple and scarlet being the uh, colors of majesty, yet scarlet, where do we get scarlet in the Bible? Well, scarlet often identifies who the harlot is to us. How, how did the um, Jews who were going to take down Jericho know which door was Rahab's? By her scarlet right, by her scarlet cord. And <clears throat> here, 
the harlot's identified by her scarlet here as well. And now listen to this. It says, she's adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls and has in her hand what kind of cup? It's golden. Now what kind of imitation is she? Well, back to our new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, starting in verse 18. So what identifies the harlot is her gold, her precious stones, her jewels. And what do we see about the bride? That's the new Jerusalem. Verse 18, the construction of its walls was of jasper and the city was of pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned. There's that word again with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure, gold like glass how is she adorned as the harlot who's trying to deceive the nations with gold and pearls and precious stones she's a false imitation of the new jerusalem the bride isn't she okay just like the antichrist is a false christ we see these imitations that are designed to fool the world now the seven heads are often associated with seven forms of government and the ten horns with ten successive kings. Now, as we talked about this woman, and we're going to talk about those, those kings in a moment, but the, the um, adornment of this woman and giving her beauty, which we saw in Proverbs, is seductive, the outward seductive beauty of the woman. What does... Uh, the Word of God tell us about that in 1 Peter chapter 3. Well, just as Proverbs warns the man about being seducted by these things, Peter warns the women not to be seducers by these things. And what does he say? He says, do not let your adornment, you see the same exact word there in all three cases. It's about adornment. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. It's not wrong to be outwardly beautiful. Some of us are just cursed with that. So, all right. <laughs> yeah, I see you laughing. Okay, very good. So it's not, it's not just, out, it's not, uh, it's, your beauty is not to be just outward, merely outward. The arranging, the hair, the wearing of gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty. Notice all these other beauties are corruptible, but there's a beauty that's incorruptible. What is the incorruptible beauty? It's of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. As a man, I wish there was a verse that told me what about me was very precious to God. Women, you have this verse right here. It tells you something is very precious to the Lord God. And it's a gentle and it, it's a, um, a gentle and a quiet spirit. It doesn't mean not speaking. It simply means not easily aroused and not easily made out of order and outside of yourself. But, but there's this peace that says, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Therefore, who can move me? Who can, who can, who can rattle me? Um, it, it's that type of peace that it's described as an inward beauty. 
It's an inward beauty. Now, have you ever seen couples like at 50th wedding anniversaries where the, the husband will give a toast and say, she's more beautiful today than the day I married her, okay? Of course he's talking about the inward beauty, okay? Um, I just transparency, I've not seen a woman uh, 50 years down the road become more beautiful than the day she got married, okay? And apologies to you women who pulled that off somehow. But uh, that man is speaking of her inward beauty and all the memories attached to 50 years of life with his wife and this inward beauty that made him fall deeper and deeper in love with her, um, that he's celebrating that. And when uh, a man can see uh, an outward beauty that makes him want to offer to buy her a cup of coffee and get to know her, and then he discovers there's an inward beauty that he says, this is the virtuous woman that I'm supposed to marry. So he, he asks, or in my case, begs for marriage, and she says yes. And then all of a sudden it's that inward beauty that carries you throughout the decades uh, together because the outward beauty will indeed fade. So what do we see of our harlot in Revelation? There is nothing but outward adornment. There is nothing inside that can maintain a marriage. That's why she's called a harlot. Uh, that's why her crime is fornication. There's nothing sacred involved with this marriage. There's nothing holy involved with this relationship with this harlot. All right, back to chapter 17. Now the golden cup that she holds represents all the sins of the world. Every lie I ever told, every test we ever cheated on, every uh, used car that ever got sold, all these things, okay? All of the sins of the world, the rapes, the murders, the idolatries, the, all, of, all of the sins of the world are piled into this cup. And you remember Jesus saying, if there's any other way, Lord, Father, if there's any other way than drinking this cup down, he's praying for any other way. That's how toxic this cup is. And that's what our Savior did for us, is he drank this cup of abominations and filth that we polluted and the rest of the world polluted. He drank that down on our behalf uh, for us. That's this cup filled with the abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So it's a picture of drunkenness on fornication. It's taking in these teachings, these false teachings, and it's making your whole life patterned after these teachings. Just like a drunk makes his entire evening about the, the wine here, these teachings, you become all about these teachings here, is the drunkenness of this fornication. Now, Jesus will replace that with a new cup, a cup in his blood. That's what's required to clean this cup of fornication. It's cleansed by his very blood. For they were washed in the blood of the lamb. So Jesus replaces this cup with a new cup, and he... Um, offers that in a new covenant in his blood to us, and um, that's what he offers us in communion. So in communion, we get the new cup of wine representing his blood. What this harlot has is what we call an anti-communion. Just like we have an anti-Christ and an anti-Trinity, here we're presented with the anti-communion. And we'll actually see the bread of that anti-communion in a little while. But this is the wine of the anti-communion. All right. Verse 5, 
It says, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. All right, so mystery, Babylon the Great. Now, why Babylon? Why Babylon? Well, we encounter Babylon uh, back in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. If you read Genesis 10, verses 8 through 10, you'll see that Nimrod is its founder. He's the founder of, of Babel. He led this rebellion against God to build this um, tower of rebellion up to God. Now, Nimrod's wife, his name is Semiramis. Semiramis was credited with founding the Babylonian mysteries. Now, Nimrod and Samirius give birth to Tamuz, and it was reported that she did that as a virgin, that this was a virgin birth, was one of the Babylonian mysteries. And Tammuz would grow up to receive a fatal wound from a boar. He was supposedly killed by a wild boar and raised to life on the third day. Do you see the imitation here? It doesn't take much imagination to see the, the imitation being done by Satan here. Okay? Now, this satanic false representation of Jesus and being born of the virgin, killed and raised on the third day, this imitation made its way throughout the world over the centuries. In fact, I've got some actual occurrences of this. Uh, I gave you these um, addresses in the Bible, starting with Ezekiel chapter 8. We read this. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 14, I'm going to start in verse 13, says, and, and he, being God, said to me, turn again and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz is the virgin-born child the, of the Babylonian mysteries, and here they are weeping over this child. Here, buying into the fornication of the harlot, of the, the, the abominations of the false teachings. Now I bring you to Jeremiah chapter 44. Jeremiah chapter 44, starting at verse 15, says, Then all the men who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods, with all the women who stood by, a great multitude, and all the people who dwell in the land of Egypt, and Pathros, answered Jeremiah, saying, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. This is Samaria. This is the queen of heaven, um, Samaria. It was what, how she was known in Babylon. And they are uh, pouring out drink offerings to her, and they will bake cakes to her, and things like that. And then the wickedness of the woman is seen in Zechariah, that I think points to this harlot. And Zechariah uh, will begin in verse 5, where it says, And the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, what is it? And he said, 
It's a basket that is going forth. He also said, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness, capital W. This is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Now, what does a stork bring? A baby, right? Okay. So what is this baby in the basket? So I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, to build a house for it. Remember, this is wickedness inside the basket. To build a house for it in the land of Shinar. Now, where is Shinar? It's Babylon. So this wicked woman is being birthed in Babylon, right? This, this is going to be the center of wickedness. And this is why, what is the mystery of the harlot, the mother of harlots written on her forehead? It's Babylon, okay? And when it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. All right, so that is who we're talking about here in verse number five. Verse number six says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. Here she's celebrating all that have died because of Christians who defended the truth against her and they paid for it with their lives. And the picture is her rejoicing and reveling in drunkenness on their blood. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, what should be the word that's used here? When I saw the epitome of all evil in a drunken fest, celebrating the death of God's people and the fact that she misled them and asserts her seductions to their own to their own death. And those are the martyrs that go to heaven. What about those that believed her teachings and go to hell? This is what she's celebrating. And what does John say? You would think in context, it would say, I ran, I screamed, I was horrified. And we're going to talk about this next week. But I just want you to note for tonight that he marveled when he saw her. With great amazement, he marvels at this woman. Verse 7, but the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will send out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life and the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So now, all sorts of debate arise in trying to identify the beast here. The resurrection language here seems to point more towards a philosophy than to a person. The reference to Babylon does as well. Now, Large, large debate. I'm sure you've heard probably three or more opinions about this in your time. And again, I'll say for our purposes tonight that I'm going to say this is the apostasy of false teaching. And we will see it take on another form in chapter 18 of the political relationship between church and state. You're going to see that relationship when they come together. You're going to see in chapter 18 that the state, when it has no more use for the seductions of the church, the false church, gets rid of the, the church. 
has no more use for it and gets rid of it. So we'll see that in chapter 18. But um, for, for tonight, uh, let's leave that there. And it says, what are the clues to this beast so that he goes to perdition? And I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Every time we see that going to perdition, it ends up being the Antichrist, and we see him called the beast. So this is indeed what we're talking about here. Now, verse 9. Here, here is the mind which has wisdom. And this is going to center our teaching next week, is having the mind that has wisdom. I dabbled in Proverbs a little bit tonight, but we'll get a little bit deeper into that next week. And we're going to see a marvelous wisdom, a wisdom that I think identifies Christianity and that we all need to participate in. Um, you're going to have to be without that wisdom for another week. You survived this long without it. Um, try to make it to next Wednesday as well. But here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now that identity, what do you think that's led conclusions to be time and again? That it's Rome, the city that sits on seven hills, correct? That it's Rome. And quite frankly, I don't think the popes have helped that very much because some of the things coming out of Rome are, to me, rather unbiblical. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. And the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven who's going to perdition. So the beast is also an eighth king who's of the seven and is going to perdition. All right, that's clear enough without explanation, right? No? All right, let's dig in a little bit then. All right. <clears throat> I think the strongest suggestion of understanding this, which you have to know, there's many, many suggestions of how this goes. I think this one fits the book of Daniel the best. And it's the five fallen kings are the five world powers that came before John wrote this. Okay, so who are they? Certainly was Egypt. We get that from way back in Moses' day. Then followed by Assyria. Okay, then after Assyria came Babylon, where our book of Daniel is. Okay, and then with the, the dreams of Daniel, we see the kingdoms that follow uh, Babylon being Medo-Persia, followed by Alexander the Great's Grecian rule, followed by Jesus' day, Rome. Okay, so the Rome that was in G Jesus and John's day. Now, so there were five kings that were, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. There's one that is, that would be the Rome that existed when John wrote Revelation. And there'd be one yet to come, which would be that revived Roman Empire in the tribulation period time. That would be the seventh king. And then it says the eighth king is of the seven, so that could mean he could be of any of those seven powers. It would seem to be he'd come from Rome, that, or the revived Roman Empire anyways, the Empire of Rome. And then he's himself the eighth king, but he's of the seven. So he'll be an eighth, but he'll come out of one of the seven, which in this case would be the revived Roman Empire. So that fits the book of Daniel as far as 
He said, you, O King Nebuchadnezzar, are that head of gold that is Babylon. It picks up in that third king, as a third king, and it identifies for us the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, and the Roman Empire, and even identifies Christ coming as the eternal king that'll sit forever during that Roman period. And we certainly know that that happened. And then we see this idea of seven mountains, which Rome sits on seven hills. They're not actually mountains, but... Um, we see this identification of the seven mountains here on which the woman sits and those seven kings, the five fallen, the current one, and the one yet to come that must continue for a short time, which will certainly be indicative of the Antichrist reign will be just for a short time there. All right, so with that, we will continue on to verse 12. It says, the ten horns... The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdoms as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. They are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and they are faithful. Now, first thing I want to point out a little out of order is simply this. We see this alliance of 10 kings that get power at once. They reign simultaneously. This isn't the seven forms of government that we just went through. These are 10 kings that will simultaneously rule. And these political alliances are going to join forces against God. Okay. So now here's the kings of the earth coming against God. Now, lest you bother getting to the edge of your seat to see what does it look like for 10 kings to battle God, well, it just says this, the lamb will overcome them. Five words, the lamb will overcome them. There's your whole big, huge struggle of Jesus versus the world. If God is for you, let me see your lips moving. Amen, who can be against you? If God is for you, who can be against you? And listen, what picture of Jesus does it give us when he takes on the world powers and defeats them in half a verse? It gives his lamb picture. I love that. This isn't the warrior on the white horse with the sword. Okay? This is the baby sheep. This is the baby sheep taking him down. Okay? He's, it's a picture of just how awesome he is. This is why we love our tortoise and the hare stories, right? Okay? Everybody's going to think the hare is going to win, but guess what? You got to watch that tortoise. He's going to come on strong in the end. That's why we love Rocky, right? Rocky's got no business winning, and he wins in the end, okay? At least I love Rocky. Now, um, <clears throat> so during Antichrist's reign, 10 kings will simultaneously rule for a brief period of time, give their authority to the beast in order to battle Jesus. But he is their king and their lord, and there doesn't appear here to be much of a struggle in Jesus' victory. He is the lamb, and it's a wonderful, wonderful picture. Now, verse 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. We went over that. These are the peoples of the world that, that she sits upon, that she's ruling over. And we talked about with Peter last week, I think it was. We talked about Peter walking on the water over the waters of judgment and so forth. So we see these varying symbols for water and how they work. Here, they're referring to getting out of Israel to the rest of the world. The, the, the waters represent um, 
the, all the, the peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. 16, and the 10 horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlots, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. This is what they're doing to the false church. So now they don't have need for the false church. Now they're destroying the false church. This would be the political alliances. For God has put it into their hearts. You see the work of God in all of this. With the chaos of a false church and a, a satanic uh, rule happening in the world. And they collide. And it says, it, you see evil versus evil here. Evil versus evil. And you see all this evil coming up. And it says God is doing all of that. Our sovereign God is doing all that. God had put into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Isn't it like God to use his own enemies to even discipline his people? Doesn't he do that? Doesn't he use foreign nations to discipline Israel? Okay, and what are we to make of that? He will actually have foreign nations discipline Israel and after the discipline, he punishes the foreign nations. Why? Because they're evil. But he uses that evil to discipline his children. That's the book of Habakkuk. It's just three chapters long. It'd do you well to read the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk's crying out about these evil nations that seem to be flourishing, and yet they're coming against Israel. And Habakkuk cannot understand. He understands Israel's sins, but he can't understand why God would allow other nations to be victorious over Israel when they're far worse by the world's standards than Israel. And God will say to Habakkuk, I am doing something that you would never have imagined. Okay? And that's what we're to always know. We don't even have the capacity to imagine the things God is doing in our lives. But he is sovereign and he's good and he's worthy of our trust. Otherwise, I certainly wouldn't say so unless that what I discovered through his word and that's certainly how all the writers of Scripture felt about him as well. All right. So, God has put into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So, um, this alliance of ten kings no longer needs the support of the apostate church and forms an alliance against her and brutally rids the earth of her. They give the authority to the beast or the antichrist for political rule. This would be at the midpoint of the tribulation because before this point, there's a temporary peace between the apostate church and the political rule of the day. But that ends here at that three and a half year mark that we're, we're seeing uh, happen here. Um, and we see this, uh, we saw this in Revelation chapter 13, described in verses five through eight. Speaking of the beast, it says he was given a mouth speaking great things of blasphemies and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. So there's the second half of the three and a half years. And then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue and nation. So there, that's that picture of the waters. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We also see this picture in Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 36. Same picture in Daniel chapter 11, starting in verses 30, verse 36. 
says, then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every God, shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. <clears throat> For what has been determined shall be done. There's the providence of God again. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. There you see the false New Jerusalem. The same description of the New Jerusalem in a false way. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory instead of God's glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. All right. So a picture of this battle. And then in verse 18, we finish with this. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Okay, so that's... Um, Babylon, as I said, and we went back to the origins of Babylon with Nimrod and his wife, Samirius, and their supposed virgin-born son, uh, Tammuz, and we saw through Ezekiel and through Jeremiah and through Zechariah, both the wickedness of the woman of this false teaching and also that um, God was very displeased with Israel as he was pointing out to his prophets that both the woman and her son were being still worshipped throughout the Old Testament time. Now, some of you may know that um, Tammuz in another language is Ishtar, which becomes what holiday for us? Easter. And Easter, of course, uh, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, but that was actually Ishtar back then, the resurrection of Tammuz. So, you know, people worry about our holidays being of pagan origin, and yeah, uh, they have pagan origins to them. So your next question is, do I celebrate them? The answer is absolutely I celebrate them in their Christian form. Why? Because my Bible says that, that as far as the church goes, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. So what we're going to see next week is this. We talked about this wisdom that was presented to us. And a, just a quick glimpse preview of that wisdom is this. It's going to be a wisdom of transformation. So what we do with Halloween, what we do with Easter and Christmas, is we take that which was intended for evil and we turn it for good. So we take these holidays that originated in pagan mythology and we put Christ, the rock, on top of it and say the gates of hell cannot prevail against this. There's not a molecule in the universe that Jesus doesn't stand upon and say mine. So we take these things back. They are ours. Just like the rainbow is ours. That is God's promise to us. These are our symbols. These are for Christ. These are for his kingdom. And we shouldn't be ransacked of the birth of Christ because of some false imitation of it or the resurrection of Christ because of some false imitation of it. We take these things which are good and holy and we stand upon them against any false uh, representation of them. Uh, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Remember, gates are defensive. They're not offensive. Nobody goes swinging a gate in war. It's not an offensive weapon. It's a defensive weapon to keep things away. So 
Jesus is saying the gates, hell has gates here. Hell has claim on property here. And it says, now what happens if we don't do anything on that property or remains in the possession of hell? But we need to know that those gates cannot stand against the church. This is our church. This is the bride of Jesus Christ. It cannot stand against that. So heaven forbid we leave these things alone in their pagan forms. Take them over. They're ours. Take them over. Rededicate them to Jesus Christ and, and celebrate his birth and his resurrection and do not run from those things. But claim them for ourselves and celebrate them and have the wonderful family memories of, of these holidays and the lessons that they teach about our Savior and our King and our God. So um, to me, that's how Babylon falls, is by the church taking back over these false teachings and saying, we don't have a false uh, baby born of a false virgin. We have a true one. We don't have a false resurrection. We have a true one. And it's that truth that will lead people to eternal life. So heaven forbid we do not take that ground back. And heaven forbid we do not tell our true stories, especially in the places where they were ransacked and taken from us. So we take them back. All right. So with that, we'll close with a word of prayer and um, um, say good night. Uh, Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you, Lord. And uh, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he's a lamb that can take down all the kingdoms of the world, Lord. So we rest in that lamb. Lord, without you, we have nothing and we are nothing. We have no strength without you, Lord. We have no life without you, Lord. We realize you are our all in all. In you, we live and we move and we have our very being. So God, be our all in all. Forgive us of our sins, Lord, for they are many, even just of today, Lord. We filled that cup of abomination but you offer that cup of your blood. So Lord, we're yours. Help us to be obedient. Help us to honor you. Lord, may we always set you in front of our eyes in all things. Lord, I pray for blessings upon your people now in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of very quick clarification questions on some of the things that you were teaching tonight. You started tonight with a verse from Proverbs. Could you repeat that verse reference? Was that chapter 7, verse 6? That was um, chapter, it's either 7 or 17. Let me make sure. Uh, I don't see it in my notes all of a sudden. Um, 7, yeah, 7, and I did six verses 6 through 27 of Proverbs 7. But a lot of the first nine Proverbs deal with the harlot or the adulterous woman and Solomon's advice to her. And the idea is to flee her. And then the end of Proverbs, we meet a virtuous woman who, when you find her, you marry her uh, like I did, right, honey? Yes. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Uh, and another quick clarification. Uh, earlier tonight, you were sort of alluding to some of this. Uh, you were talking about false teachings. Uh, and then you uh, mentioned the Catholic Church. Um, do you believe the Catholic Church to be included in that false teaching? Well, a, you know, if, if, if they're staying with any sort of works salvation, if works are participating in all in salvation, I've got to reject that wholeheartedly. Um, now, I've rejected that in front of my students and so forth, and I had a Catholic student say to me, my, pat, my priest vehemently rejects works being a part of it at all, and I think that's great. I'm very happy for that. Uh, transubstantiation, I have 
very serious issues with that as well, to believe that Jesus is being re-sacrificed over and over again every Sunday all over the world. Um, I have troubles with that teaching as well. Uh, I think they are caught up in some false teachings, and I sound very, very arrogant to say something like that. But when I understand what they do and I look at my Bible, it's not a match. So I have to say that, yeah. But I think there's many, many Catholics that have an authentic salvation through Jesus Christ. They believe in him and they love him and they adore him and they worship him. And, um, and, 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 and prayerfully, that's true of, of a great many of them. But I'm, I worry about those who rely on works. Do you know, a lot of our volunteers that come out of the Catholic Church at Calvary, we find serving at like every service. And sometimes when you ask them, it's because they're working hard to please God, that they still have that remnant of works in them. And um, some of them just love to serve, and that's great. But some of them feel this is how God is going to be pleased with me, and that's not unconditional love of God. Uh, so... Um, so there's some things that worry me about them, just like I worry them what I believe, but they worry me about what they believe as well. The only other question that we have for tonight is from last week, and it is referring to chapter 16, verse 15. Uh, do you mind giving a little bit of background around that verse, particularly around the remnant of believers left at this time? All right, behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So you said as it regards what? Let me reread it. As it regards to the remnant of believers left at this time. Okay, so it would be referring to those who came to faith after the rapture, and um, they will be martyred for their faith, according to this. And this is Jesus' encouragement that um, they keep their garments. We talked about that last week as far as that's the righteousness that Jesus clothes us with are, are these garments um, so that they're not exposed in their nakedness, which would be their own righteousness. Just like Adam and Eve tried to sew fig leaves together for their own righteousness to cover their own shame, and that was not accepted by God. But God replaced that by a, a covering that, of a sacrifice that he made just like he gave his only son as a sacrifice to clothe us in his righteousness. So um, if, if, the, if the aim of the question is to identify who Jesus is speaking with, I would say, yes, it's those who were not saved at the rapture, so therefore they're left behind, but they do come to faith. Um, and this is an encouragement for them to be faithful up until death. Um, and we'll see that more than once in Revelation, a call to be faithful even unto death, because in that wicked world, martyrdom is the destiny of the uh, person that comes to faith, which is preferable to not coming to faith, of course. Thank you guys so much. We will see you next week. Bye, everybody.